Good morning. Happy New Year. I'm Kristen Paleo. I'll be reading the scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 44 to 47 with you. You'll find it on the screen. It's also in the Pew Bible, page 164. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. This is the word of the Lord. When I was in school to become a pastor, a few other students and I, we, we had this little joke between us about preaching, and, and it wasn't unique to us. I've, I've heard it in other contexts with other pastors since, but we would ask each other if we had any sermons coming up. So, you got any sermons coming up, we'd say, at our various churches, and then if so, what we would be preaching, what passage, and no matter what passage someone said, We'd nod our heads and go, that'll preach. <laughs> that was our little joke. Like, we'd say, so someone says, what do you preach? And say, Philippians 2. Oh, that'll preach. Like that was our joke. Leviticus 13, that'll preach. Deuteronomy 32, that'll preach. And silly as it was, it communicated the posture toward the Bible we had. Which, to be more specific, I still have. Here we have a preaching team where we each have kind of a shared ownership of different parts of the whole, but as the lead pastor, I've been tasked with especially kind of thinking through and charting through the preaching calendar, both in terms of preachers and passages, and one of the struggles I have, if we could call it a struggle, would be to say that I I could play, in a sense, Bible roulette, (laughs) where you just flip to whatever passage of the Bible, and wherever you land, that'll preach, (laughs) right? That's how I feel, at least. And so, how do we choose? How do we choose what to preach? Well, there's some matrix, I guess, of prayer and the Lord's leading and thinking through the time of the year and the themes of individual books of the Bible and what challenges our church is experiencing, what weaknesses we have in the moment. In other words, a knowing of the flock and so on and so forth, which is all the way to say, on New Year's Day, we have something of a freebie, of a sermon. We, we finished our Advent series last week on Christmas morning, and next week we're going to be returning to the Gospel of John. We were there all summer long and broke for the fall, but we're, we're going back, and we'll be in John chapter 5. But So this Sunday, again, is a freebie, so what are we going to do? This morning, instead of just preaching a Bible passage... I've chosen to preach a Bible passage about the Bible and about our posture to the Bible. The kids these days would say that's being very meta, I think. That is preaching about preaching the Bible. But I just think, I just think it's a sweet emphasis for us as we begin a new year. And so with that in mind, would you pray with me one more time and we'll look at God's word together. Heavenly Father, we sang moments ago asking 
We were singing, but we were praying that you would be our vision. And Lord, that you would speak till your church is built, that, that, that your words and your speaking would be the means by which you build up your church across this world, and that you would do so until your world is filled with your glory. I pray that what we do here this morning would be a means to that wonderful end, the edification, the building up of your church through your speaking and the filling of this world with your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, I'm looking out at people who are on the plains of Moab. You, you may not feel yourself to be there. You may not even know what it means to be on the plains of Moab or where that even is or was. But in the book of Deuteronomy, the people of God are poised for newness and for blessing, for trials, for difficulties, for challenges, and for adventure, some of which they are aware and others of which they have no idea. And so it is with us here on this New Year's Day, poised for newness, for blessings, for trials, for, for difficulties, for adventure, some of which we are aware and others of which we are not. And yet the people of God who were just east of the Jordan River, just east of the Dead Sea, just this short hike from Jericho and Canaan and the Promised Land, they, like us, were not left to themselves. They had a word from the Lord and God's word to them was firm. It was not an empty word or an idle word. It was to them life. It was to them life and for them life. That is, if they would cling to it. And so it is for us. God's word to us is life if we would cling to it. Many years ago, a young Christian man wrote a series of resolutions in all, there were 70 of them. They're sort of like the typical New Year's resolutions, except they're super intense and super spiritually minded, and they were written over a couple of years, not maybe a week at the end of a year. And there were 70 of them, but I, I want to draw your attention to what got numbered the 28th resolution. It goes like this, 28, resolved. To study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. It's wordy, I know. Let's say it again. 28, resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Now, what this young man was saying was this. Oh, that I might so live with the Bible that I can even notice my own understanding growing year after year. And without saying the words, this was a resolution to finish well. He wrote that in his early 20s and he died at the age of 55 
serving as the president of an Ivy League school and perhaps one of the greatest theologians of all time. Now, some would say. I don't know. I don't have a way to measure that. Now, whether you typically participate or not, there is some cultural pressure, or at least precedent, towards New Year's resolutions. And we can easily scoff at them. I mean, Jeff pointed out, 90% of them fail, and anthems are better than resolutions. True. But at its core, the whole notion of a resolution is to acknowledge that it's more important where you finish than where you start. To make it more concrete, where you finish 2023 is more important than where you start today. How you finish the Christian life, how you finish your Christian life really matters. Some people would tell us that our culture is becoming increasingly biblically illiterate. That is, we are less and less and less familiar with what God actually says. And not only that, but we are told that we're less and less and less inclined to actually believe what God's word actually says. I think those who tell us that are correct. In 2014, so about eight years ago, a very prominent ministry began this biannual, every other year, study of people in churches, and they would conduct it and ask all sorts of questions to people like us. They're, they're churches where people are ostensibly wanting to believe and trust the Bible, and they're asking questions about that. And over the last eight years, they've noticed a perceivable decreasing trend in orthodox views of the Bible. To make it more concrete, I'll put it this way. I've been a pastor here almost nine years, which means that if our church is average, if your average in these years, on the whole, our church has a less high view of the Bible than we did eight years ago. I hope we're not average. <laughs> I don't know, what, what, what do you think? How do we fall out in that? How do you fall out in that? I think there is a great need to recover our devotion to God's word, a need to reckon with not even the, the intricacies of what we believe about the Bible, but our whole posture towards the Bible. So with this in mind, look with me again. The book of Deuteronomy, hopefully you have it open. I'll read it here as well. So it's on page 164 in these pew Bibles. I want to read our portion of scripture again one more time. Deuteronomy 32, beginning in verse 44, Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for... It is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. We spend a few minutes here bringing you up to speed on the context of this book that we call Deuteronomy and, and who these people were. What's, what's the context here? Well, when we pick up the book of Deuteronomy, as with most places in the Old Testament, you're dealing with the nation of Israel. 
God's chosen people, the people through whom he was intending to bless the world. In Deuteronomy, we're looking at Israel at a very specific point in time, though. It's a fragile point. Great and wonderful and terrifying realities are being weighed in the balance. There's a transition of leadership that's coming very soon, in fact, is already underway. From Moses to Joshua, there was new land for them to occupy, battles to be fought, new aspects of God's glory to experience, and perhaps in the eyes of many, their situation was tenuous. They were fragile. Have you ever felt fragile? And the question that loomed over them was, how would they thrive in the new land, and how would they finish better than where they started? They wondered whether their progress in society would come from their own ingenuity. They were tempted to believe that their prosperity in the new year would come only from their strength, from their effort. In short, they were tempted to believe that if they were to thrive, they needed to do what the others around them did to thrive. The other nations and the world in all its ways were seductive and powerful. And what they needed to do was to resist those temptations and instead go back to the basics. God and his word, which is what Moses tells them. And yet the reason the promised land was over there and they were over here was because of their disobedience. In the book of Exodus, God rescued them Rescued his people from slavery. And then shortly after, they're supposed to go into the promised land. And they start to go and then they, they don't trust the Lord. And they end up wandering the desert for 40 years. And on top of all of that, Moses, their, their leader who had been with them through all of this time, he was a man who was about to die. He wasn't going to go with them into the promised land. Soon Moses would climb this mountain. It was called Mount Nebo. He'd climb it to its highest peak, a peak called Pishgah, on the north side of the Dead Sea. And from there, he could look out across the Mediterranean and see, or excuse me, across um, the Jordan River. And if it had been clear, he could have seen almost all the way to the Mediterranean, but he would have seen the promised land. And all that is up in the air. So that's the context. Now, what are they told? Those are the people, those are the ones who's talking to them. What, what is it that's said? All of this, the, the location of the people, the temptations they experience, the shortnesses of Moses' time with them, all of this means that Moses' words to them in the book of Deuteronomy, the second law, these, this re-preaching to them, is calculated. It's premeditated. He's, he's verbose, he's got lots of words, but he's not meandering. His words are many, but not unnecessarily so. They're on point. They're on target. And when we come to chapter 32, Moses is condensing the entire book into a song that he recites to the people with their new leader, Joshua. What an image that is in verse 44. This man, Moses, who God spoke to in a burning bush, this man who told Pharaoh, you let God's people go. 
This man who, when he held up his staff, in the power of God, the Red Sea opens, the Red Sea closes. This man is now singing a duet with a young leader named Joshua. When Moses and Joshua finished the song, a song that was condensing all the themes of all the book of Deuteronomy down in just a few stanzas, he then takes that song and he squeezes it down, condenses it even smaller into a single message, a single paragraph, uh, this final salvo of sorts, a final warning to God's people that we read in verse 47 where he says this, for it. God's word is no empty word for you. It is your life. I learned some time ago that you could tell a great deal about an author and what they're advocating for when the author uses a phrase, something like, I'm not saying this, but I'm saying that. And here we have Moses saying, I'm I'm not saying this, I'm saying this. This is no empty word for you, but your life. The ESV uses the word or translation, empty words. also have appreciated it over the years as I've looked in this and other translations and how I first came across it in the NIV, which says these are not idle words. Now, normally when you hear idle in the Bible, you're thinking I-D-O-L, like idle in a statue, right? Idle like breaking the second commandment. But idle here in the NIV, verse 47, is I-D-L-E. Like what a car does in the driveway, it idles. Doesn't go anywhere, doesn't do anything. What, what Moses is saying is, it, that's not what God's word is. God's word is not idle, rather God's word go place, goes places, it, it, it does things. It's not empty or hollow or worthless, rather God's word is your life. It, Most of the decisions we make on a day-to-day basis, they're not monumental. Now, perhaps in some way the smaller decisions add up to something larger. I I do believe that. Actually, the reading of God's word incrementally does add up to something big. But most of the decisions, the food we eat for dinner, what we wear, the car we drive, even the house we buy, buy, which is an enormous decision, is not, you know, generally speaking, a consequence of life and death. Some decisions, though, They have this magnitude. Some choices have weight and consequences. They're not trivial or petty. And what Moses is saying to Israel and for us is that your allegiance or lack thereof to God's word and by extension to the God of the word is not trivial. How you relate to God and his word is the most important decision you have in front of you. In 2023. I really believe that. I think that's clear from this passage. And some of you might need to be reminded of that. But I wonder if most of us. As people who say generally. We want to believe the Bible. We do. I wonder if what we most need to see. Is something else. What is perhaps more interesting than the fact that God's word is not empty is what God's word contains. 
Or we might say what God's word produces. Moses equates allegiance to the word with life. That word life, and for that matter, death, they're loaded words at this point in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses has already spent a good bit of time setting before the people what he calls life and death, blessings and curses. See all of chapter 28. He's taken lengths to explain that if the people would only be passionately committed to following the ways of God, they would have life. And not only would they have it, uh, excuse me, if they would not have it, they would have death. Again, I just, I want to read these words to us one more time. 45 to 47. When Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children and that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long. You should be blessed in the land you are going over the Jordan to possess. The idea of going over to possess the land of Jordan to live long in that land implied that the way they would experience the fullness of life was by obeying God's word, all of his word, not, not picking and choosing. The doctrine of inerrancy is not some made-up doctrine in modern evangelicalism. You, you heard the repetition of the word all, all, all the words to all the people, to all the children. I wonder if you and I make this same connection. I mean, culturally, we, we talk about the good life, right? What do we mean by that phrase? What, what, what comes to mind? What is, what is the good life? If I asked you and I came in, you know, what, what is the good life? What would you say? I was joking with someone the other day about the good life. And uh, I said, for me, I, if I had all the money in the world, I, I would wear a new hoodie sweatshirt every day, brand new, and then I'd throw it away. Or give it to you. <laughs> and I'd wear brand new socks. Brand new, fresh hoodie. Super soft, super soft so- socks. And then I'd buy beef jerky. And eat it all the time. <laughs> like from the gas station. When it's way too overpriced, like that's what I would do. That, to me, that's the good life. This simple man here. Um, what, what do you think of when you think of the good life? Where, where does the good life live? What does the good life own? Who are friends that you have in the good life? What do your coworkers say? What do your family say? I think this passage speaks to all of that. If we don't understand that obedience to all of God's word and the good life are fundamentally the same thing, then you won't understand Moses. And you won't understand Christian obedience. Christian obedience is is not doing something devoutly, even though you know, oh, the sweetness of life is somewhere else. Rather, the Christian life means joyfully following God, even if it means at times through painful tears, because you know that following the Lord is the way to have life. So that's what they were told. 
That's the crux of Moses' warning and his invitation. These are not empty words. These are not idle words. They're your life. He's saying, church, that the way we prolong our lives in the land, not meaning individually and not even knowing how long our lives will be. I think for us it comes as a, a metaphor for blessing and how God would build us and shape us into the people he intends for us to be. But the way we receive that, the way we receive, to use Jesus' words, the abundant life is by clinging to the God of the word. So, we've seen who the people were, namely those on the plains of Moab. We've seen them poised for a new beginning. We've seen what was said to them, that these words are not idle, but they're life. What, what, what does that mean for us? Truthfully, it's hard to know specifically what this passage may be calling you to do and what resolutions, if you want to use that word, or what anthems are appropriate for your life. I certainly know generally what this passage is calling us to, but how it plays out in your life specifically will have to leave to you and God. I hope in some ways this sermon stirs a passion to perhaps study parts of the Bible you've not studied or studied little. Maybe you need to take some time considering very very concretely, like in the new year, what place will I read the Bible and what time of literally as practically as what time of the day will I read the Bible? You, you need a plan. Will I read in the morning or over lunch or before bed? Will you read at the kitchen table or in the park or in the car before work? A, a plan will help. So, so there's that. I'll say this too. You don't have to read the Bible to cover to cover on your first attempt. Um, if you're new, perhaps, and every pastor and every Christian probably has their favorite suggestion. For mine, it's just to say, read Luke and Acts, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Doing that would give you an overview of the life of Jesus and the birth of the early church and a familiarity then to launch into other parts of the Bible. Some of you might need, in a sense, a personal trainer in the Bible to keep you moving. You might need to take a class or some sort of course because the accountability is what you need. If that interests you, just, just email me, David, any, Tony, any of the other pastors here. We have all sorts of options that we'd love to share with you that you could do on your own or in partnership with others at the church. Last fall, back at the end of September, I, I traveled to Iowa for my last grandmother's funeral. She died at the age of 93. And at her funeral, I, I stood there and recounted the story I remembered from her from 20 years before. We had visited grandma at Christmas time, and she confessed that she had skipped ahead in her Bible reading <laughs> because we were all coming to visit. But for the first time in her 70s, she read through the Bible cover to cover. And she confessed that she was skipping ahead just so that she could get it done before we all arrived and all that it meant to, to host my family as we grew up. But she had this desire to know God's word, that she would know life. She was resolved to finish well, and she did. You don't have to wait till you're 73 to read the Bible. In fact, I wouldn't encourage it. But however old you are, you're not too old to start going deeper with God and his word. In Deuteronomy, there's no question 
as to whether the, or not the people of God have already been showered with God's favor. At this point in the story, God's people were already rescued. They were already saved. They were already God's children. They weren't there to, to earn something. Well, I'll let you go into the promised land if, if, if you, you know, read my word or heed my word well enough. They had already been rescued, already been saved. And so my comments here about reading the Bible, they're, they're not about earning God's favor, striking a deal with him that if I do such and such amount, then well then this way he'll bless me in the new year. It's not about that. So I know there are some of you, you, you haven't opened, I mean just to be frank, you haven't opened the Bible in months. And all of this isn't to pour guilt upon guilt. It's not about guilt. It's going to make you read your Bible for two weeks. It's not what I'm after. This is about longing to experience the love of God afresh as you soak in the ocean of wonder and delight that is God's word to his people day after day. As I said earlier in the sermon, we're going back to John chapter 5. And when we hit John chapter 5, a couple sermons in, we're going to hit the end of John chapter 5. And we're going to come to this conversation Jesus has with these religious leaders. And listen to what Jesus says to them. You search the scriptures... Because you think that in them you have eternal life. By their kind of like fastidiousness, like of really being in the details of the word. You think that when you do that, you get life. But he says, it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. In the word of God. We do not have empty or idle words because we have the word made flesh. We have Jesus who lived and died, was buried, was raised, ascended, and is sitting at the throne of the universe and promising to come again. And this word to us is for our good, that he would dwell with us and be with us. I mentioned at the start of the sermon there was a young man who made these series of resolutions he said in 28, resolved to study the scripture so steadily, constantly, and frequently that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. The author of that resolution was Jonathan Edwards. He died about 20 years before America was a country. But the impact of his ministry is still felt today. In his own day, he was part of and even a catalyst to what has been called this great revival that swept across the country. It was later dubbed the first great awakening where droves and droves of people were soundly converted. His most famous, perhaps infamous sermon is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which unfortunately typecasts him as a very doom and gloom preacher, which he was not. But regardless, the text for that sermon actually that God used so powerfully comes from chapter 32 of the book of Deuteronomy. Verse 35, in due time their foot will slip. Anyway, Jonathan Edwards would make that resolution because he knew that great things were at stake and whether or not he advanced in his understanding of the Bible, life was at stake. This morning I'm looking out at people who are on the plains of Moab. You may not feel yourself to be there. You may not even know exactly where the plains of Moab are. But in many ways, that's where we're at. In the book of Deuteronomy, these people, they're poised for newness and blessings, for trials, for difficulties, for challenges, for adventure. 
Some of which they are aware and others of which they are not. And you and I, here we are on New Year's Day, also poised for blessing, for newness, for trials, for adventure, for difficulties, for challenges. Some of which we are aware and others of which we are not. And yet the people of God who were just east of the Jordan River, just east of the Dead Sea, just a short hike from Jericho and Canaan and the Promised Land, they, like us, were not left to themselves. They had a word from the Lord. And God's word to them was firm. Not an empty or idle word. His word to them was life. It was life to them and for them, that is, if they would only cling to it. And God's word for us is life, if we would only cling to it. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up and lead us in a few songs. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, as we study a passage of your Bible that is a passage about your Bible, I pray that you give us something more than mere enthusiasm, something more than mere adrenaline about the Bible. Enthusiasm and adrenaline might carry us for a moment, but I pray instead that you give us glorious, settled convictions about your word. That you give us a posture toward your word that is fitting, a posture of humility and trust, a posture of reverence, a posture that views your word as life. I pray that these settled convictions, this posture would carry us into the new year and on into eternity. We pray this in Christ's name.